Uh, welcome everyone to another episode of Paths Uncovered. Um, I'm Akantra Malik and you've probably heard and seen on the many photos of the covers and stuff and I'm joined today by Jason Van Tome. I'm very very excited to talk to him today because he was actually recommended as a person that should be on the podcast from last week's guest which was Shona Shauna, oh my God, every single time I make this mistake. Shauna Bang, please, oh my God. I'm, I absolutely hate when people get people's names wrong because I'm like, no, just make the effort to know it. And yet every time I talk to her, I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but anyway, I'm very glad that you're here and welcome. Thank you very much. And you said my last name correctly, which is like a miracle. Nobody ever says it correctly, ever. Oh, I'm so thankful. <laughs> Immediately as I went to say it too, I was like, no, I didn't check. No, I always check. <laughs> no, well, I'm glad. We've off to a very great start by Shauna's, Shauna's. Oh my God, no, it's never going to come back to me. Now I've mixed it up in my head anyway. But um, so yeah, basically we ended up just very randomly getting connected. And because yeah. you've got an absolutely wild career journey, which we kind of talked about a little bit just as we were kind of catching up. And I definitely want to dive through it because I think I was saying, I'm like, last week I did a talk where I was like oh yeah look at my career like two years I've done so many things nothing it is literally nothing compared to what oh my god I can't even start into how crazy everything you've just gone through so to start with I've heard well I mean you've kind of mentioned but I've also heard that's how Shauna got into it it was like so he wanted to be a music performer and now he's a data scientist I'm like this is ideal for the whole podcast this is perfect so do you want to talk a bit about like how a you kind of got into that end of things and why you wanted to be a music performer to start with yeah yeah it's interesting um I don't know what my you know I don't you know I hear hear, you hear world famous performers like they had this moment or you know this thing in in their life that was uh so sort of you know catalyzing for them um I don't remember the exact sort of moment where I thought about that we always had music around at home we had a piano um there's always records playing the radio's playing um, and so that that was very present. But um, yeah, so I don't know what the initial motivation was, but I did want to become a musician. And I, I came to that a little bit late as a as a, you know, as a teenager, um, I started to play the flute, uh, which is not an obvious instrument to play necessarily um, uh, for, you know, a kid in, in a small town in Alberta, Canada. Um, and so I started that quite late. I was 15 or 16 years old, which is very late. And to have the expectation of going to music school with only a couple of years of playing. Uh, but I seemed to do well enough. Uh, and um, I got into music school and at McGill, which is, you know, um, uh, I'm biased, but, you know, it's the, it's, it's, it's certainly um, the, the, the number one of the top top schools in the country for music um, and many other things, of course. But, um, you know, I was incredibly fortunate and I got there, I was surrounded by people who um, were just radically better than I was uh, as a flute player and as musicians. And that was incredibly uncomfortable um, and and challenging, but at the same time, um, talk about a great learning opportunity, right? Um, and, and I think, I don't know if it was sort of those moments, but certainly there's been something that's been consistent in my career, which is feeling uncomfortable is a good thing and feeling like you're being challenged is an incredibly good thing. Um, you know, one of the greatest things we can get out of the thing we do every day is knowledge uh, and and information and, and sort of having a better understanding of the world and yourself. So, um, 
yeah, I think it taught me very quickly that there was no way I was going to be a successful musician at the level these people were, uh, my peers. And, you know, this is like other 18, 19, 20 year olds, right? It's not like they were, these were seasoned pros, but, um, yeah, so that was that, uh, that was that sort of early journey. Um, but, but very early on, uh, and I'd always, you know, since I was 12 or 13, I always had computers and, um, you know, my first computer was a VIC 20 and, uh, and I had, you know, the cassette uh, drive and then the floppy drive and, you know, the, the whole thing of kids in the in the 80s. Um, but but when I got there, they were really starting to work hard on um, a music technology program, which are incredibly common these days. Um, but at the time, they weren't. And certainly, uh, um, I think I, I, I don't know this for sure, but um um, it may have been one of the first to really sort of anchor the idea of how do we create technically um, um, proficient musicians as opposed to creating musically proficient technicians, like the inverse. So you often saw this in engineering schools as opposed to in music faculties, right? So I think it was a big leap for those music faculties. And so I found that little community there and um, and sort of it joined these two really fascinating uh, things for me together. Uh, and boy, it was, you know, it was pretty early days compared to what we have now. But, um, you know, when I think about people always say, oh, if you're a musician, a good musician, you must be good at math. Or if you're good at math, you're probably good, you know, those sorts of sort of cate categorizations or generalizations. But I think there's some truth in it in that they're both systems, right? They're languages effectively um, and there's structures and sort of rules of how things get put together and how things work. And um, and so I think there's some natural fluidity to that. So that was that sort of journey. And then the early days of, you know, what does it mean to work with information um, was pretty, pretty cool. In fact, uh, the, the, you know, most, well, I don't know how many people, you know, the age of the people who listen to the podcast, but um, maybe some of the older folks will remember there was a computer when Steve Jobs left Apple the first time and he started the next next computer uh, company. Um, you know, you could buy these next computers and they were insanely expensive, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, something like that. And um, I remember one of the professors at the school, um, he was a music theorist. Uh, he was doing work on, you know, um, you know, 12 tone analysis and you know you know compositional analysis and his methods were so computationally intense at the time that we were looking at how to network together these computers these next computers imagine like this is like it was just so so rudimentary and it's just amazing that you could even contemplate it, but you know, we got something working and two computers were working on this thing. And, you know, I'm sure that they were like, the fans were going crazy trying to do this, but uh, it was really exciting times. So those awesome. are the early seeds of it, I think, yeah. It's crazy now then to think about where we are with virtual machines and connecting up multiple different clusters and nodes. And it's just, that's it. connect yeah. and, oh, it's crazy yeah, if you're I, like, yeah. In fact, I think that particular problem set could be done on your phone like without even blinking these days like or your watch or something you know <laughs> just like whatever. everything works right everything's connected <laughs> that's right at the yeah. stage that's, um, i think it's yeah. just so interesting you mentioned the fact that um 
like you kind of realized really quickly that you wanted to find your own little niche because you were like, well, I'm never going to be as good as some of these other people are already who've been kind of living and breathing. And I think, I mean, I, I can kind of relate. I remember when I started my degree, which at the first year was just mathematical sciences. And yeah. I mean, the people in my course, I mean, there's people who've gotten gold medals for getting the highest score in Ireland in maths. And I'm like, I thought I was okay at math. I mean, I enjoyed it and I did okay, but like, that no I can't I mean and I mean I remember my friend who would just I think it was like a basic real math or analysis or something like that and I mean she would just get it and I'm like I could spend a whole year trying to understand this and I will never fully just get it I'm like I'll have to understand yeah. and I was like I yeah. think it just really is important finding that what works for you out of everything and I'm like yeah well okay communicating that kind of stuff is great for me and I've now ended up in consulting which is basically just translating things other people don't necessarily understand and I'm like it's just really interesting to see that kind of a pattern where everyone just finds their little niche you're, you're absolutely right like I remember those I had a, a similar moment you know obviously realizing that sort of the level of giftedness that the, the people around me had um, but I think the other thing I realized was um, I started to understand how people learn differently and experience differently then. And it really came down to this sort of very specific um, uh, sort of set, set of moments effectively. There are two flute teachers. There's, I think there are three or four flute teachers, but there are two sort of main flute teachers. Um, and one of them was the principal in the Montreal Symphony, still is to this day, just astonishing, uh, one of the best flute players in the world. Um, and and, and the, the other one was the, the assistant principal, who was my teacher, um, and, you know, she just retired a few years ago. But what was really fascinating about this, their styles of teaching were just completely different. And I only know that because, obviously, I studied with her, but other people studied with the other gentleman, Tim. Um, and the people who studied with him learned in a very different way. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's like they had an intuition about... Um, what he was doing or the way that he uh, taught was through a, a specific kind of intuition, I think. I will show you how to do it. And right. Um, whereas the style of my teacher was very different. Um, it was a very different approach and it worked for me. Um, I mean, I was not the best, her best student by any stretch of the imagination, but nonetheless, um, her method for me worked really well. And so finding those moments, you're absolutely right. It's like, oh, there's something analytical about how she describes this process, which really resonates, right? So it's like, hmm, there's something in that. Maybe I should carry that forward. Um, yeah, that's really fascinating. But boy, feeling out of place there was not out of place, but like out of one's league. It's just like, whoa, you know? Yeah. If you if you don't turn that into a learning moment, it's just going to sink you, right? It's just... I mean, I think, especially, yeah, like everyone in the course, like were at the top of their schools, right? I mean, everyone was so used to con consistently being in the top of their grades. And then right. to come along and I'm like, <laughs> so not in the top here. Um, <laughs> but then still finding like that little place where you fit in and finding those teachers. I think it's just so important. Yeah. And there's so many stories that you kind of hear where people are like, oh, I dropped out of computer science because it's just not for me. And it might just be the case. It's definitely for that person. It's just they haven't found the right way or the right person for them yeah, to connect with. Sure. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we've done the degree in music technology and you're one of the first people who's yeah. kind of really gotten out of it. So like, how was that? Like, you're basically in this whole new playing field. Um, what was the next? Like, as in, did you know what was next? Were you questioning what's happening? 
Yeah, it, it, I think uh, along with everybody else who graduates from an undergraduate in something that's an obscure field at the time, it's like, I'm going to go to graduate school. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went to graduate school. Um, and um, I stayed at McGill. Um, and, you know, I, I, to be honest, I had a, a fantastic um, mentor and teacher there. Um, and, you know, what I, what I really was in, enabled to do was explore quite broadly. Um, and so my focus in grad school was um, sort of this weird intersection of how of human performance, modeling human performance. So it's cognitive science. Um, and, and also, I guess, what we might have called artificial intelligence at the time. So how do you represent human interaction in a performance context, a music performance context? performance context in a computer model such that the computer can perform with you. And that was really my my uh, master's thesis was, can I come up with a way of having the computer pay attention to what the human is playing? Um, and in my particular case, it was a very specific thing. It was about rhythm. It wasn't about pitch, it was about rhythm. So the pattern matching and segmentation. Um, but again, sort of you finish that and you're like, okay, well, that doesn't help very much. It's interesting work. Um, and so where do you go with that? As luck would have it, uh, my thesis advisor had a former doctoral student, um, uh, computer science, computer scientist, who was doing work in Chicago, uh, north of Chicago at Northwestern University um, at the Institute for Learning Sciences, which I think had only been around for, I'm trying to remember the dates, maybe three or four years at that point. I could have that wrong, but um, it was an institute um, sort of that sat at the intersection of education and computer science and psychology. Um, and really the goal was to be able to take lessons from artificial intelligence research at time at the time in cognitive science research and learning sciences and build it into systems, computer systems that could be used for training, right? So some of our early clients were uh, the US Army, um, the Environmental Protection Agency, some companies as well. Um, but really the goal was like, how do you represent inter human interaction in, in this case in social senses? And so like the, in the army case, you had to present your findings to your superiors and they would challenge you. And these are all artificial characters, right? It was all human video faces like this big on the screen um, from LaserDisc. So it was like, it was a long time ago. Um, but but it was really fascinating about it was, um, it was, you know, an interesting analog. It wasn't human performance in a musical performance sense for me, but it was human performance in a, in a in an interaction sense. How do you interact with other people? How do you uh, defend your arguments? And so there's really quite rich, complicated tools that are required for this. Um, you know, like how do you build logic statements? Because all of this was like rule-based systems, right? Um, so it's very, very challenging problems. Um, and so yeah, that was that was sort of the trajectory into okay, I can actually like make a salary somewhere <laughs> with this graduate degree that's not like, you know at a coffee shop or something like it was actually doing the thing that, you know, using the skills. And so what was interesting, interesting about that was um, the simulation work I did in my graduate program, I wrote it all in Lisp, um, which, you know, like nobody writes Lisp these days. I mean, people like write closure, I suppose, but um, yeah, so it was all in Lisp, um, which was really amenable to the problem. 
in the way of representing information and knowledge. And when I went to the Institute for Learning Sciences, the systems were all written in Lisp because it was like all of these, you know, AI guys from the 80s and, and 90s, early 90s. Um, but actually, my first job was actually porting it from Lisp to C++. But anyways, um, yeah, it was good times. And so that was really fun. It was like amazing. Um, and boy, talk about feeling out of my league again, right? Um, this is a knowledge space. You know, you're surrounded by PhD candidates, postdocs, you know, famous researchers, famous computer scientists. Um, it was fantastic. It was amazing. It's great. Great. I, can, I mean, I can already kind of see the whole theme of feeling good and being uncomfortable and getting used to that feeling. Yeah. It really does make such a difference. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So you sure. moved from Alberta, were you in, was McGill in Alberta? Sorry, me and uh, No, no, it's okay. I grew, I grew up in Western Canada in Alberta and then McGill is in Quebec. Uh, so literally, almost not quite literally on the other side of the province or country, but very close. Uh, and then moved down to Chicago, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. And then, so you're now building all these things and you're having all these great meetings with actual people who are making kind of differences. I think it's just, I remember being on my first client project that was, I thought was making a big difference. The work I did was, I was like, oh my God, people are actually using this and like, it's helping yeah. other people. So I mean, it sounds like, especially with like the army, like building out things that they're going to be using, like that sounds like a fabulous project and the experience around us. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, you know, there was this flavor of, it's innovation. Is it so far innovate down an innovation path that it's um, it never gets productionized? Um, in some cases that was true. In some cases that wasn't true. In some cases it was like legit became part of training programs and things like that. Um, that army project was fascinating because it was a DARPA grant uh, funded project, and um, you know you we sort of got grouped into it was it was this uh, this initiative. I think it was called. I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it was called Force 21 or something sort of menacing like that. Um, but it was this entire, entire um, you know, sort of funding of advanced technologies. Um, I think really, you know, you know, the military, this was in the late 90s, was really realizing, you know, the, the power of the Internet, the power of connectedness in in the situations that they were working. And so they were really trying to sort of explore the potential of technology in new and meaningful ways, which of course they always have done. But I just happened to land in a project that was a part of that, which was really exciting. So, and it did, it did sort of get us, you know, understanding some of the challenges of building the systems like we were. And so when we went on to the other things uh, that we did do both there at the Institute and and I worked later for the commercial version of the Institute, the com commercial um, sort of entity. Um, it was very similar work. So you ended up here in Chicago because you'd met someone else. And like, I feel like people kind of, yeah. actually now tend to like still look down a little bit on those kind of connections. Like, oh, you knew someone who did this, like you didn't just get there. And I think it's so yeah. important to highlight those things. Of, it makes such a difference of just talking yeah. to other people and seeing what their other experiences are, which was kind of, the premise of these kind of places where I'm like, let's just talk to all these people who've had crazy cool careers and see if inspires yeah. someone else to have a wild career. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, um, the gentleman who had was working there, um, he, he, you know, I I never, I I mean, I I met him once I got there, but I certainly never met him, and I don't ever recall even speaking to him on the phone in advance of that. Um, 
obviously there's no video call. I mean, that sort of thing didn't exist. We probably emailed each other once or twice. Um, you know, I send him a resume in ASCII because I don't think you could use attachments back then. Um, but it's just like quite literally, you know, it was, hey, somebody knows somebody who has, uh, you just have to like, you just have to have to leverage those moments, right? Otherwise it wouldn't be, I, who knows what the path would have been. Like it was so formative in both my, you know, next two or three roles, but also recently, and, you know, we'll get to that, but just like the work I do now is feels so connected to that work then and, and like on a, both at a sort of personal level, um, but also a technical level and some of the challenges, interestingly, some of the challenges are still the same. The technology is different, but the challenges are similar, so. So what was next after Chicago? So you worked there for a couple of years. Um, yeah, 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 we, um, um, we, my wife and I decided to, um, uh, move to Boston. Um, I sort of had in my head and I did pursue it a little bit, um, of going back to graduate school. Um, and I, I talked to, um, a researcher at, at the media lab, you know, like about that potential, um, that I, I didn't, it didn't end up going anywhere for me, which was fine. Um, but my wife went to architecture school and she went to architecture school in Boston. Um, and so we moved there um, and, you know, it was, Boston's a great, um, a great hub uh, for interesting technology and related fields innovation. So whether it's, especially these days, biotech and, um, and finance and, and so on. So we went um, and the, the first role, um, I don't even remember if I had a connection to this to this job that I got in Boston. It was um, at a company called um, BBN BBN Systems, Bolt, Brannick and Newman. Uh, Bolt, Brannick and Newman were three professors at MIT who were uh, acoustics uh, professors, acousticians. Um, and I think the firm, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think the firm was founded in maybe the early 60s, I want to say. Um, and what was really interesting is they did a lot of, I mean, they obviously did a lot of work on concert halls and things like that that you would expect acoustics people to do, but they also did a lot of work with, um, with the Navy, um, because things like silencing torpedoes and submarines is an acoustics problem. Um, and so, you know, I got to this campus at this, at this, uh, this company, um, that had this incredible history and there's sort of an important fact I'll come to in a minute, but they had a little bit of a campus and, you know, my, my boss at this time, who she was an amazing, she's an amazing boss, amazing person, you know, which sort of giving you lay of the land of the campus. And there's one building over there that has like the tank in it. There's like this giant pool of water that they would submerge things in and do the testing in there. It's fantastic. Anyways, what was really interesting about BBN was they were in that work and, like people can read the history of it and um, uh, there's much obviously much better history than this but one of the things they did was they were so intimately involved in driving the development of arpanet which of course became the internet and you know bbn owned so many class a ip addresses or like some range of them like i think they sort of you know privately owned more than anybody else at one point but that made them interesting as an internet company and an internet presence and an internet sort of uh, development space you know uh, uh company and so 
they ended up getting purchased because of all of that asset that they had. Um, but they did focus still a lot on their core business, and that core business to this day still exists. Um, I think it's owned by Raytheon, but um, it's still focused on these hard problems. And we worked on, um, I worked on a couple of interesting things there. One was um, a, um, a simulator. It was, it was a virtual reality simulator. I kind of remember the date for this. So it must have been 97, 98, I want to say. Um, so you imagine virtual reality in 1997, 1998. It was a joint contract with MIT, a uh, company called iMetrics, and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute um, in Massachusetts. And it was really the goal was between the three, uh, three, four um, sort of investigators in that grant was to they had these underwater vehicles and they wanted to be able to teach them, not teach them, but teach, sorry, teach the pilots because they're tethered to a ship. Um, and the pilots use a, a camera basically um, uh, on a TV screen on, on the ship and they're controlling it. Um, but there are certain things you can teach them or that they need to learn and that are, are reasonably teachable, at least at the time in, in virtual reality. And so you'd, put on this headset and you're basically observing the underwater vehicle. And you can imagine like the particulates, the ocean particulates are like that big, you know, it's like a grain of sand is like an inch by an inch sort of thing. Um, Cause the fidelity is just, you know, but it was, it was this custom headset, custom, you know, um, sort of auditory experience tethered back to this giant Silicon graphics onyx machine. Um, just really amazing work, amazing scientists to work with. Um, yeah, so it was, it was fascinating. What I always, <laughs> I happened to, when I first got to this company, Boltbrang and Newman, we're on the floor in this one building and, you know, we walked by this one guy's office and, um, and it, my boss was like, that's Ray Tomlinson's office. Um, and I'm like, I don't know who's Ray Tomlinson. So I go look at him. He's the guy who, he came up with the at sign when we use the at gmail.com, whatever. He's the first person to use that sign because basically they were typing to these two computer, one computer, two com you can read about this. It's so-and-so at that, right? Um, and it was the way to specify the location. And so when you read about that and, or, you know, you sort of walk around these storied halls of all these people who had done these things, it was really fascinating. And again, as, you know, a 26 year old or whatever I was at the time, 27 year old, talk about feeling like a I was so out of my depth, right? It's like, oh my God, what am I doing here, right? Like, how do I learn this stuff? And I think I did okay work there, uh, but boy, did I sure learn a lot. Like, and I think I was there for two years. Just incredible experience. It was amazing. Uh, and I, many friends who who uh, who remain sort of lifelong friends from that experience. I think it's, I mean, it really does highlight that. I think what. This is that saying, isn't it, where it's um, you are the average of the people you surround yourself with. And yeah. it's absolutely crazy how quickly you can learn when you're kind of flung into that. I know nothing. I am super uncomfortable. But hey, at least people know I know nothing and I can ask all the questions. And it's yeah. such a good place to be in, like, selfishly from that point. Of, I'm like, well, I know I'm going to end up coming out of this with a really, really good experience of it. But... Yeah. You know what? I, it's interesting. You hear a lot of, I think, especially in data science, because I think the field feels like it's just sort of figuring itself out. And, you know, I always say people are always like, what is a data scientist? I'm like, well, it's such a weird term. And 
I, th I think it needs to mature and in, in this, this, this space needs to mature in the same way that, you know, if you're hiring, if you go to a, a video game team and said, um, hey, I hear you need a software engineer. I'm a software engineer. The first thing they'd say is, what kind? Like, what's your thing? Are you a rendering engineer? Are you a systems engineer? Are you a gameplay engineer? Are you an audio engineer? Are you an art and technologies or tools and technologies? Like, what what are you? And I think I think that's for me mentally that's what's happening in data science. It's like, well, what are you? Like, you can't be all of those things to all of those people. And I think what that drives is if people feel like they can or they are supposed to be, it drives this. You know, people talk about you know this inadequacy, like the imposter syndrome, blah blah, whatever. But I think if you find those spaces that are allow you to really grow in what you want, even if it's you're uncomfortable there, um, and if you always feel like you're slightly uncomfortable because you're learning, then that sort of goes away. It's like, oh, actually, I'm becoming the best at that, or I'm striving towards being really accomplished at that, the thing that I have passion about, right? Um, so I think it can be really misleading for people. It's like, well, but I don't know you know, ethics, I don't know, causal inference, I don't know all the machine learning techniques that are take 100 years to learn. I don't know visualization, I don't know data engineering. Like, how could you possibly know all of those things with a depth um, and not feel that way, right? Yeah, it's fascinating. Actually, I'm so glad you touched on that because I'm like, yes, constantly, every time someone asks me, like my dad, the other day, I remember showing him these visual, like I've mocked up a dashboard on Power BI, and I showed it to him and I was like, oh my God, look at this really cool thing like that I'm working on. And he's like, I can do this in Excel. Like, why are they paying you to do this? <laughs> and I'm like, ah, excuse That's me, so I'm much. building a story here. Like there's a purpose to this, don't mock it. And then I look at it and I'm like, I get your point, but I'm gonna pretend like that's not true. <laughs> But like it does kind of come down to it is just met multiple different building blocks that build up some like this whole data science world and you just choose the ones that you are good at and you want to stay at. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can't you can't tell. I mean, I, I think there is a case for generalists and in in many roles, I think you you do need to think like a generalist. But um, but then I think you approach it in a different way. Right. Um, you yeah. don't say. I'm going to be like the world expert in all of these potentially like you just can't like it's not even possible right it's literally being like yep i am medicine <laughs> i do all the medicine exactly. well, that's exactly. it, right that's exactly right yeah okay cool so we've oh my god we've done so many things already in your life that i'm like how do i even keep track but we're in boston <laughs> and you've done all these moves and i kind of like compare this to now a little bit where moving is awful it's really mm -hmm. really really grim the packing just makes me want to go die a little bit like every time I think about moving anywhere but at least moving and this day and age is a little bit easier with support the communities that have been built up like what yeah. was that like back in the day like I mean I know you mentioned you built VR systems in 97 and I'm like I was a year old that is it's a whole different world right I'm like okay yeah great tell me more <laughs> Yeah, it's that's a really great question. I mean, certainly those kinds of communities um, existed in in a different fashion, I suppose, and 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 I think in many ways people anchored them. I think it was easier to anchor them in your work, like your workplace. Um, the the company I went to right after um, BBN uh, was that commercial venture of the Institute for the Learning Sciences. It was a company called Cognitive Arts and. Um, 
You know, what, what I found fascinating, in, I think at the time and also reflecting on it, you know, in, in the years since, um, the people who, it wasn't just an age thing. You know, there's a certain age where you just have these work experiences or, um, you know, you're, you're old enough to have some money, but you don't have kids or, you know, you're not worried about your house or those sorts of things. So that community built there. But I, I think people were so committed and so passionate about um, the particular problem that we were solving or, or f why we were solving it because we were enabling people. But at the same time, I think there was interesting complexity in the approach. It was sort of a little bit rebel too, because this idea that you could have in, in the case of what we were doing, curriculum through experience, right? Um, and not just like hand someone a book and give them a test. There's There was a certain amount of rebellion in what we were doing, which was, no, actually people learn better when they actually do it, right? Um, and how do we build an experience, a virtual experience? I mean, it was PC based, but it's still a virtual experience for someone to experience that. Like, how do they, how do we do that? How do we give them those hard experiences? You see sometimes people um, or companies will do this in real world. They have real world, like scenario role play kinds of things, right? Um, which can be incredibly effective because people sort of feel it. They're like, oh, I have to be the customer or I have to be the person providing that customer and the customer is berating me right now, right? Um, but can you do that virtually? Can you elicit those same kinds of responses? Can you um, provide that kind of energy? And so we had that sort of vibe of like, oh, this is really interesting, um, pushing the boundaries of what corporate education looks like um, work. And I still think of it that way to this day. Um, but I but I think that's where our community was, to your point. Like we had a a strong community of people sort of pulling in that direction. Um, and we were also a startup, which, you know, it's not all that different than when we think of startups in, you know, the Bay Area or whatever, like th those sort of, you're at work so much, those become your community um, in, in many ways. But there weren't anything, there wasn't anything like, you know, meetups in the way we define them now. There was, you know, there's some online communities, but it was very thin. Um, yeah, it's just a very different time, very different time. Super. And so I actually think relying on people you know, you know, the the connections is, is actually really was really important because how else would you do it, right? Like, uh, how how else would you sort of approach that? So I I, th I think that was incredibly important. Yeah. And I think I mean. I look over my non-existent career in comparison at times um, over the last two years where I'm like, I, so I graduated and I was so used to doing like 14 hour days in college, trying to keep up on top of everything. Cause at this stage I'm like, well, I know I'm not going to come in, be coming out of this <laughs> degree with like the top grades. Like I knew that. So I was doing all the extra things I could to make sure I was still in that sense of like learning everything I could. I'm also kind of trying to figure out what the hell I actually wanted to do because in the degree I'd figured out I didn't want actuarial science. And I'm like, 14 hour days were just normal. Like I think my body, I swear, for a good year after college was still used to only having six hours of sleep. Like I couldn't actually sleep any longer. It just got used yeah. to it. And I remember starting at work back then I was like ready to do the same amount of work. I'm like, well, I don't know any better. Like this is what I'm used to doing. So why would I not? And 
the first day, <laughs> like the first week, actually, I remember going into work and because I was still jet lagged, I'd just moved across. So I'd be up super early and I'd be in the office for like 8, 20 ish every other morning. I'm like, well, I'm not going to just sit at home. I'll just go in. It's fine. And I'd literally get people at like 4.30 being like, you've been here since like before nine, leave, like go home, like you're done. Why are you still here? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do if I go home. Like I don't have anyone else to go talk. Like, it's not like I have friends here yet. Like this is, this is kind of all I have right now. Please don't make me go home. But like, I just didn't know how to spend those extra hours of my life. But now, like two years later, oh, my God, I value that so much. I have never in the last two years worked over 40 hours a week. And it's never been expected from work that I would do that. And I just, oh, my God, it makes such a big difference. And it's just those things that you don't even realize that you value. But now looking forward, if I was to ever look for jobs and stuff, I say the culture of the place, that supportiveness and the community parts of people around you willing to answer questions like I remember so at work, we've got, I've got a colleague whose name's Bernard. He has like lived and breathed SQL and Excel and like has been in the industry for so long. And I remember my first like week in a bit, like he explained, I'd never even heard of SQL before I started, like for context. Um, and he kind of was like, okay, a database stores data. Like, let's start at that level. And I remember asking like, okay, so let's start. Like, is this all, like, is this what it does? Like, those are the kind of questions I asked. And he would still put 20 minutes aside, like whatever he's doing and like go through things with me. And that means so so much for someone at that level but yeah yeah like now that I look for I'm like I could never move to a company without having talked to people in that company to see what the culture is like or what is your work-life balance or how are the people and it kind of just comes back to those communities do exist in the work but without talking I'm like I I just can't even imagine that anymore I'm like a brand name does nothing to me it means nothing yeah 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 it's that's a great point. I, I, I think that um, I think you know pretty quickly. At least in my experience, I've known pretty quickly if you, if you. I've always indexed. I've always had two rules for myself about jobs. The first one is always, if you're interviewing or talking to the people, you know that you potentially be working with. If you feel like you can be the dumbest person in the room, that's somewhere you should go. Number one, for me anyways. Number two is if you feel like you've lost the the fire of learning or, you know, the passion, not the passion for learning, but the, your opportunity isn't providing you satisfying that passion for learning for me. Um, that's when I start to think, is, is this the right thing, right? Is it still the right thing? No, it might be because it might be a great area of, 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 of sort of where, what the work is is um, in an area that's really you can be passionate about. But for me, I'm always like, mm, okay, like how long can I sit not learning and learning anything? Like what would that not not that you never learn anything, but you know what I mean. So I think those are really important um, sort of motivators, um, and I think you can get that from early conversations in thinking about what are those workplaces like, what are those opportunities like. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes those exist outside, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. those exist outside of work, um, whether they're, you know, in communities or whether they're in, you know, like 
all different kinds of like hacking for social good or social good enterprises or those sorts of things that we as data scientists, we as engineers, we as you know AI practitioners or machine learning engineers or whomever can easily contribute to. Um, and so that can be a really great way to satisfy those those urges too, those opportunities as well. Yeah. Yeah, we're so lucky to have that kind of thing now, right? Whether oh. they're inside companies or outside companies, right? I mean, it's it amazing. allows the people, I mean, okay, even if you aren't that comfortable doing that at work, at least you have the opportunity. Like, it's just the fact that there's just opportunities that are existing for everyone to feel comfortable wherever they feel comfortable. And it's just, oh, it makes such yeah. a big difference, especially from people moving into tech now. I'm like, oh, you've got all the support you can ever yeah. ask these days. Um, yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, so sure. we're back in Chicago for the commercial Um Part of the no it was it was actually in boston i mean they had multiple offices at that point so yeah they started a boston office yeah okay so when yeah. did that endeavor kind of start coming to an end and was it the fact that you weren't necessarily learning as much or weren't finding the place that you were looking to move or what was the next decision for you yeah i had um i had an opportunity to go this is uh, uh i want to say this was 99 ish 98, 99-ish. I had an opportunity to go um, to a startup. Um, it had been around for a few years, but it was definitely part of that startup scene in Boston um, that was focusing on an interesting, um, interesting problem set. Um, I had sort of moved into engineering management at that point, um, not entirely, but but close. Um, and you know, you you have to make you don't have to. Some companies are actually very fluid this way, but um, at the time, I felt like I had to make this decision of, am I going to really knuckle down and become an excellent engineer as a career, um, or am I going to think about how to you know take my you know interest in working with people. Um, and you know, building relationships and building teams in in a technology context and focus on that as a manager, which I did. Um, so I had the opportunity to go to this this relatively small company. It wasn't it wasn't that small. 100 and I don't know. I can't remember what we were at at that point. 150 maybe. Um, and it was taking natural language processing um, fundamentals, classical natural language processing, what we these days would call classic natural nat uh, natural language processing. And applying it in a business context, this is early search days. Google was just an infant, um, I think barely out of their dorm room. Um, Inktomi, AltaVista, these sort of old, older uh, search engines were still around. Ask Jeeves was was around. Um, but it was focused on on business uh, text and information. It was an interesting problem set, right? So you have these large, extremely expensive analyst papers, analyst publications, business information from like the Forrester and Gartner and IDCs or in the Thomson Reuters and those large producers of, of analysis. And you wanted to be able to search over it so you could find the right reference point. And since they were so expensive, this is actually a high value proposition, right? Like is an important problem to solve. Uh, but we and so we were working with companies um, to see how this would integrate and, and sort of deploy into their into their um, into their space. I, it was an interesting problem space. Um, technically, 
Um, I got to meet customers. This is the first time I really got to spend time with customers in a meaningful way, um, and uh, which I loved. I absolutely loved it. Um, it was really exciting. Um, and uh, um, yeah, that that sort of went on for two years at that that gig. Um, the company, the dot com boom busted. Um, company was purchased by a, a holding company, a technology holding company, and then that holding company went bankrupt. Um, and so I actually went to work for a, a, a company that was a client of ours at, um, at that search company, a company called Symphony. Um, and I loved, I loved the work we did there because it was, it was sort of taking the, the sort of the best of understanding, best of breed, um, you know, uh, work around connecting concepts in language to really surface it at a very high level to um, people who are paying attention to how their brands are being talked about. Um, I mean, the problem space, you know, brand tracking isn't super interesting to me, but the fundamentals are really interesting and the technology was really interesting. And so we did some really cool work. And that company actually went on for quite a while um, and was bought a, f a few times. And I think it still exists um, in one form or another at some companies. So anyways, it was um, it was a really great experience. Again, got to spend some time with, a little bit of time with customers, but more time actually sort of flexing my, learning my chops as an engineering manager and spread out to operations and quality assurance and things like that. Um, and I would have stayed except uh, we decided to move back to Canada. We had been in the US for 11 years at that point um, and uh, it was time to come back, so. Um, it was a very quaint thing. We're like, oh, uh, you know, Bush got elected for the second time. We're coming home, um, which in hindsight is laughable. Um, it's like, whatever. <laughs> just, you know, such naive, juvenile, you know, uh, sort of view of the world. But at the time, it was like, oh, it felt like the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, it was a whole bunch of other stuff lined up. So it's like, OK, we're going back. And then we came to Vancouver, where we've been for 16 years. Oh, wait. Sounds like great decisions because I mean, I feel like you've been absolutely yeah. thriving there because everything yeah. else that happened since, as, as if everything so far was in like wildly <laughs> interesting. And like, you've literally been at the part like the start, like the fact that you met like the person who created the app. I'm like, just so many different things here that I'm like, oh my God. So you went on then and you started at EA. Is that where that was next? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to say, I applied a bit of uh, a bit of a gamble, sort of a lark in, in some ways. There were some interesting technology companies in Vancouver that were more in alignment with the work I was doing. Um, but I think I was so, I was so foreign as a, like, why would you hire somebody from Vancouver? And, you know, this is like two, or from Boston, this is 2005. Still no, you know, you're not like, there's no video calls going on or, or, you know, none of like this kind, that's for sure. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, what was happening at the time in, in the games industry was really that, the start of the transition from from the Xbox and, and the PS2 to, to the Xbox 360 and the PS3. And so, you know, teams at the time or companies at the time were had a variety of different approaches. And but one of them was basically spin up a team to work on the one platform and have another team on the, the other platforms, the older platforms, which meant these companies were growing like crazy. <clears throat> and games at the time was actually relatively, you know, there wasn't a lot of hiring from outside of games into games. Okay. Yeah. 
worked over the years. Um, and so that's why I was like, oh, I'll send it in, but I don't think anything's going to happen. Um, and I also knew that I'd have to take a bit of a step back in my career in terms of level and things because I was shifting industries. Um, and that was a bit of a gamble. It's like, well, whatever, you know, if it gets us there and if it's great opportunity. And it was, it was great opportunity. I got to work on, I was at EA for 11 years. I worked on, oh, I think five or six FIFA titles, was able to leave, lead the development, the, the development direction for um, a couple of years of that, uh, which was incredible learning. Um, uh, I love that experience. It was hard. It was very hard, physically very hard, uh, because it was just quite intense. Um, but I also got to do things like go to Montreal for two years and be the COO of the EA Mobile Studio there for two years and come back to Vancouver and work on, you know, cross-company data initiatives, uh, which was really exciting. Um, got to work on, you know, work, work very closely with the, stu the studios in Asia, got to visit Tokyo a bunch of times and Korea and, it, you know, so those, those are all fascinating, amazing experiences to learn from. Um, but right near the end of that, I guess it was the nine and a half, 10 year, you know, that's a long time for anybody. And you're sort of like, hmm, uh, like, what, what am I doing? Right. Um, I started to really want to get back to um, the technology and engineering connection that I had in, in the spaces I was in. And in, you know, reflecting on those, they were really very much what we might call data science now, right? It's a lot of machine mm -hmm. learning what machine learning was back then. It was a lot of data-driven decision-making and predictive analytics or sort of predictive direction. It was a lot of systems that, you know, lit up information for people. We, we would call that visualization now. And so you sort of see that path of, of, uh, of sort of work. And I, I sort of was missing it. I really was. And I was feeling some I was where I was feeling excellence in execution. I was feeling atrophy in my connectedness to that technology, and that was sort of like. Uh. And then seeing where you know data science was really encapsulated. This notion of data science was encapsulating a lot of that work. Um, I decided to go back to school um, and to see both if the problem sets had changed, um, like the fundamental problems but also just to skill up on the tools and technology and cover off some gaps in areas where I knew I, I didn't have as much strength. Um, turns out a lot of the problems are still the same fundamentally. Uh, we're better at them now, but then eh, still the same problems. Um, and the technology is way cooler uh, and way more interesting, especially for somebody my age, right? So it was like super cool. Um, and that's when I, that's when I write about when I moved to Microsoft. Uh, where I am today after four and a half years, which has been fantastic. Oh God, wow, like wow. Actually, I can't believe you've actually covered everything to be honest. But I mean, I think <laughs> it's like, it really does show though, like when you are passionate to learn and you know what you kind of want to be doing, like you will go back to school and you will get through all that kind of stuff and you're just going to yeah. keep pushing those kind of changes. You're like the whole moving back to Vancouver, like, well, this is where I want to be and that means sacrificing other bits like which is fine and it'll come back to wherever it needs to end up being and it'll sort itself out nearly yeah that's it's a that's a really great observation like it was it was no question a gamble right um and if you know people know anything about like the housing market in vancouver even back then you're just like oh my god how are we going to afford to live here and 
Um, and and you, you sort of, you have to play a little bit of uh, cross your fingers and hope the long game works out. And um, But as long as you're challenged and, and can see that potential, right? Um, and and I, I think I really approached my move to Microsoft in a very similar way. Um, I, I moved into a role that, you know, on its face was lateral at best, um, but super challenging and interesting. So it was kind of irrelevant in some ways, like, well, I didn't have that many people who were working for me or that I was influenced or whatever. You have to put that aside and it's like, what is my impact going to be? Like, what am I, what am I driving here? And, and sort of how do I quantify that? And I think that's something I've learned being in the roles that I've been in at Microsoft and the company does a fantastic job of thinking about this and having people reflect on this in a meaningful way, which was, you know, what's your impact and how are you changing people's ability to do great things in the world? And, and it's just the motivation is so strong. Um, and, you know, frankly, in a company the size of Microsoft, the opportunities are virtually endless, right? Um, for both, you know, personal growth and development uh, but just like ability to impact right it's it's fantastic it's, it's great it's i mean that resonates in terms of shana mentioned this of i think she said her dad mentioned this to her where it's like do you want to be using cutting edge technology or do you want to be building it for everyone to be using the cutting edge technology and it really does come down to what you prioritize as what makes the difference for you at the end of the day yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like that's kind of how I ended up in consulting where I was like, well, I just, I don't particularly want to build things. I just want to see how it'll change other people's views and how yeah. we can help other companies at a larger scale help make those changes. It's so interesting. But then also, look, I mean, listening to all this, like it, I think at times people start focusing on like, oh, okay, for this job, this is my experience. This is everything else. This is why I'm going to move to the job. And people tend to forget the life like there is life behind this. It's not just the tech job and it's not just the tech. And it's so interesting. I mean, like those decisions were like moving back to Vancouver. I was like, well, US is not the place we want to be in Vancouver. I think you mentioned the, the climate was great. I'm like, hey, Australia is doing pretty well in that sense too. I'm like, it's a great place to be. But those yeah. decisions aren't yeah. always tech based. And you're like, it's not always the job that comes first. That's and the support is so important. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you know, moving back to Canada, I mean, we came back to a much stronger, um, not stronger, but a much uh, heavier tax burden because Canadian taxes are much more than the U.S. Um, the cost of real estate here was more expensive, even than a really hot Boston market was much more expensive here. And so you have to look at that and think, what is that worth? Like, what is that like? What is that actually worth? And you know, hindsight's 2020, of course, and 16 years, you know, obviously there's something right about the choice we made if we've been here this long. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is. And sometimes I think when it comes to the connection of work or the, the environment that the industries have, it takes a little bit of patience to like the, the technology industry in Vancouver compared to, you know, 2005 is radically different. Um, and, you know, you, you, you think of the companies who have come out of here or people who have come out of here and started amazing companies. You know, Stu Butterfield is from Vancouver. He started Picasso. He started Slack. And, you know, Slack has a big presence here. Tableau has a presence here. Um, not that I think they have a connection to Vancouver. But, like, you know, you start to see these Microsoft, 
Hootsuite, like all these, this industry is starting to really blossom in, our, in an incredible way. Um, and yeah, it was a bit of a bet, I think, as a technologist coming into this space thinking, you know, is this going to, what, what's the, what's the long-term potential here? Unfortunately, um, it worked out, but also, you know, it's, it doesn't hurt to look out my kitchen window and see the ocean and the mountains and trees and, you know, be able to go to the beach all year long. I mean, it's cold. You have to wear a jacket and whatever, but you're still like on the ocean, right? It's not like frozen or something. So um, it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. I like that though. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't give up and ugh, we've got this big garden around the house and stuff. And oh my God, I value that so much, especially the year that we've had, like with Melbourne having been in like an eight month lockdown. Yeah. That, yeah. oh my God, it makes such a difference. You know, what's fascinating is um, you just reminded me, like the work that the teams that I work on work with right now, um, the um, the Dynamics 365 Guides and, and Remote Assist team, which is a HoloLens uh, set of pair of applications. You know, it's, I mean, there's there are a lot of public stories about the success of, of people using those in the current context of COVID and, or, and not even necessarily even just COVID, but you can imagine sort of like these remote scenarios um, where people need to be supported in the work they're doing. Um, and yet we don't have the social structures around us in the same way that we did a year ago. Um, and that is incredibly gratifying, not only just our products, but our company, how our company's products are helping that and, and just how technology in general is helping that, which is it's just incredible. So um, it's really, really great to be a part of something like that. And that, you know, is that is that a is that a learning uh, thing in, in in that sort of strict sense of learning? No, but you're doing it. You're the, the sort of outcomes of what you're doing are are, are really meaningful, and really impactful. Right. Um, so that's uh, that's really cool. And there's some, there turns out there's lots of learning there. So. <laughs> We're doing okay, well, I feel like honestly, I could keep going and talking forever <laughs> at this stage. There was just so many different things that are so intriguing, but I think we might wrap it up there for today. Sure. I am so, so thankful for you to sharing all of the different parts, being vulnerable with the different things of moving and all these decisions that you've made. I'm sure like there'll be people listening in talking about, like, I think you meant, what was it link? Is that the language that you were using or moving oh, this, to yeah, this. Yeah. this not link sorry this i'm just like i've never even heard of that but i'm sure there'll be people who listen I'm like oh yeah that i mean it'll make sense to others i'm like it's been really really great chatting to you so i'm very thankful for your time today thank you for having me it's been wonderful and it's uh it's been an absolute pleasure spending time chatting with you and and, uh, and, and getting to talk no, I'm glad Shana put this through and we ended up having this discussion. So I will leave you go and wrap it all up today. So thank you all for listening. I'm so glad that people just joined in for this and we shall see everyone soon. Thanks, Kingshan. So that was Jason Van Tome and his absolutely amazing career journey, which has led him from being a musician and learning music technology through to the world of research, the beginnings of search analytics, uh, working at EA with FIFA and all the way to actually going back to school and becoming a data scientist now. Um, and it was a really, really lengthy podcast and I will be trying to make sure that the next few ones aren't as long as this, but honestly, um, I don't think there was any way of making this one any shorter, especially with the career Jason has had. Um, I look forward to seeing you all again in two weeks time where I'll be talking to Kim McIntosh, another Canadian who has now made Sydney her home and is running a tech startup um, as well as running a job at a team 
at Telstra Purple. And in the meantime, feedback is always appreciated. So please send that through and I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>